Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and welcome to a new series of interviews on Reality Asserts Itself. I've been wanting to do this series for a long time. Michael Ratner is one of our regular guests. He's also one of my favorite guests. He's also a board member of The Real News Network. And as you know, those of you who watch Reality Asserts Itself, part one is usually kind of biographical, and then we get into some of the issues. Well, we're gonna do it a little differently with Michael because we, one, we've interviewed Michael on the issues many times. In fact, Michael does a weekly gig with us. But Michael has also lived so much of the important history uh, since the 1960s to today. And, and through the story of his life, it, it will be a great and important, I think, exploration of those events. So more or less, this whole series is going to be biographical. So without further ado, joining us now in the studio is Michael Ratner. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Wonderful to be with you, Paul. Michael Ratner is President Emeritus of the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. He's Chair of the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. He's currently the American Legal Representative for WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Michael and CCR brought the first case challenging Guantanamo detentions and continue their efforts to close Guantanamo. He's the host of the radio show Law and Disorder. He, is, well, he was president of the National Lawyers Guild. He's written several books, some of them legal theory, others more popular. Uh, most recent, his book, Hell No, Your Right to Dissent in the 21st Century America. And as I said, he's a board member of Real News. So, as I said, we start from the beginning. Well, the beginning, Paul, is that I started as your earliest board member of The Real News, right? That's right, you were like, <laughs> I think, number one. And now I'm sitting in this unbelievable studio in Baltimore. So, and congratulations, because everybody ought to get here. It's fabulous. Well, thank you. And, and just, we are inviting just about everyone to come, and we'll <laughs> right. let you know when. Won't be long. Um, so, l let's start at your beginning. Your, t tell us about where you're born, the house you grew up in, and, and, and more about what shapes you in terms of you as a socially conscious, politi politically conscious person. You know, it was a long time ago. I was born in the middle of the Second World War, 1943. So it was a Jewish family, as I was being born, of course, millions were being killed, Jews and others, in, in Europe. And, of course, that was always something that I was very conscious of in my family. My family was an immigrant family. Uh, my father came from 1921 from Poland. Uh, he had no money. He came when he was 16. He had no education. He was raised during the First World War. And he would tell me stories about the First World War. Now, coming in 1921, there's, there's different waves of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe. And the 21 wave is different than my family's, which is the 1904 wave, or usually trying to escape pogroms. But coming in 21 sounds like escaping the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, I think that's important. His older brother came in 1905, which was, again, a pogrom in the part of Poland they were in. And he came in 1905. He went back in 1920 to get my father as all his brothers and sisters, of which there were many, eight, uh, and brought them here. And that, that is true. It was about the Bolshevik Revolution, at least in large part, I think. Um, they had a very small textile loom or something, three or four looms. Um, and then I think the story is one day the Bolsheviks came into uh, Bialystok, which is where they were from, and they told my grandfather, well, now you're the manager and you're not the owner anymore. And for a variety of reasons, they decided that wasn't a good idea, and they... Uh, and they left. I think one of my uncles remembers actually Lenin's troops coming in, uh, coming into that part of Poland. So, so it's an amazing set of memories around that. So is that part of the milieu, a sort of an anger against the Bolsheviks? And, and as you grow up in the Cold War, propaganda against the Soviet Union heats up. Um, is that 
in your household, given the history of being, you know, taken, mm -hmm. the business being taken over and such? It wasn't, I don't think it was in the household. What was in the household for sure uh, was that everything can change in a moment. Um, that security, country, um, livelihood, all of that could shift. And so there wasn't any real feeling of permanence in that sense. Uh, when my father came, I said he was 16, he had no education really because during the war he couldn't get one during the First World War. Um, and he started off as a water boy on a construction job. Um, a water man, I guess, but he called himself a water boy and he would carry the water for mixing the concrete by hand. He then had what was typical for, I guess, that sector of immigrants, which is to open a little, they called it a, a creamery, but it's essentially a little place that sells canned goods, much like we see people doing today. And then my family eventually went into a, a trucking building business, really, uh, business. But he never had an education. It was very important to him that his three children had an education. My mother was one of 12. Um, she, of the 12, she was the only, there were only two born in this country. Again, her family all came from Poland. Uh, again, she was very poor. She told me stories of having to trap pigeons on the roof uh, and eat them for for, you know, for, for their meals. So they both came out of families that, that had very, very little. Um, and But eventually, as my father got into business, um, he, did, he did decently well. Uh, as, a, as I said, it was a concrete business, but what was interesting to me about it, and it was one of the shaping things of my career for sure, uh, were two aspects of it, I would say. Uh, one is, there are two types of trucks. One is a cement mixer, one is a dump truck. And the cement mixers were controlled by the Teamsters Union and you could only be white to drive a cement mixer. And there was higher pay than those people who drove uh, the dump trucks, which were primarily in Cleveland at that time, African-American. And my father hated it. This is all in Cleveland. All in Cleveland, and my father hated it. Um, he, was non he didn't ever believe in discrimination. Back in our household, oftentimes he'd have, we'd have people who were just out of prison, and it was a big thing for him to uh, support people getting jobs who were prisoners, et cetera, former prisoners, et cetera. This was, you know, he was not into any kind of discrimination at all, and, into, and very much in, because he was working class himself originally, at least when he came to the country, very, that, that was his, his sympathies. And so one, what, at one point he tried to cross that, that, what we'd have to call a color line, to put a, an African-American into a white cement mixer, and the truck was blown up. Um, this was a, 1950s Cleveland was a very, very segregated city, including the labor force. Uh, so that was an early, very early lesson for me on, you know, the, on, on really discrimination. I mean, pure, the, the hardest kind. So but you're about 10 years old when this happened. 10 years old. Not just in the workplace. I mean, not just in, 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 in living in housing patterns, which Cleveland was completely segregated housing-wise. Like Baltimore, where we are. Yes, very much so. I mean, you know, my community had very few African-Americans in it. Um, and, but in, in the workplace, in the workplace as well. I think the second thing that was interesting and important for me is I hear I was the son of really the owner of a business. Um, and, um, and I would walk out in the yard and everybody would give me this extra respect as if I had done something in my life. And I'm nine years old. And I look and it just felt completely uncomfortable, completely. So it's a situation I business. You're the, the owner's kid. Right. It's a situation that obviously in my life I just tried to avoid. Um, I never wanted to be uh, in that situation. And I think a third thing is not just being Jewish, but having a father who had a very heavy accent, so heavy that you know, he wouldn't do a lot of public speaking or anything like that. Um, and, and therefore we were sort of, a, I mean, Jews were also isolated, certainly from the, 
the upper class, upper middle class. Was it the same thing in Cleveland? In Baltimore, there used to be signs up, um, no niggers, no Jews, no dogs. Uh, and, and even in the newspaper here, as, as late as 1969, there was a section of real estate for whites, a section for Jews, and no section for blacks. Yeah, I think Baltimore, you know, partakes of its southern history in that sense. I mean, it was it was it wouldn't have been that overt in Cleveland, but you know, it wasn't like if a if an African American family wanted to move next door to my house in Shaker Heights, which was a upper upper middle class suburb. You know, I don't think that the real estate I guess people what I'm wouldn't asking, have shown were, were it. Were Jews as segregated as they were in Baltimore? We were one of the first Jewish families to buy in Shaker Heights. There were there were there were covenants in all the deeds that you couldn't sell to African Americans or Jews, and perhaps other others. But those two, I remember, was held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So by the time I'm born, those covenants are knocked out. There's still not a lot of Jews uh, where I'm living. So. So in the sense we were uh, just to make sure everybody gets that because I don't think mm. a lot of people know this history. There's a, there's actually laws in Cleveland. There was in Baltimore. I assume in some other cities, it was actually in your deed you were not allowed to sell the house to a black family or a Jewish family. That's correct. Um, and it went to the Supreme Court, and it was a case called Shelley v. Kramer, but it's not important. But uh, the name, but but they held that unconstitutional discrimination, and it was one of the earliest. That took place in the 40s. Um, so, by, so we moved to Shaker in 1940, after the war, 48, 49. So it was really shortly after those covenants were held unconstitutional. So, so I felt so, so the third influence would have been this feeling of being a discriminated minority, partly because of being Jewish, but also partly because my father was probably the only father in my entire elementary school who had a heavy accent. I was the only immigrant kid. I mean, as far as I knew, that, that it was so, so. All of those influences really made me both. You know, obviously, the issue of of, of race and discrimination was huge for me. Um, the issue of of business and and having what have I accomplished that I deserve extra respect for that. Uh, and the third one being essentially an outsider. And I think those were all were all influenced. At the same time, of course, it was a Jewish family, and Israel was founded in 1948. Uh, so I'm five years old. Do I remember founding? No. But do I remember meetings at my house like there were in probably many, you know, uh, affluent Jewish homes about supporting Israel? And of course, lots of that. Uh, and, uh, and ultimately, I went when I was, you know, 13 years old. I spent two months in Israel. So <clears throat> support for Israel, feeling Israel as a kind of a homeland, it becomes part of your identity? You no, know, did we feel it as kind of a homeland? I can't say. It's post-Holocaust. You know, it's, it's partly about a, a place of safety. Yeah, I think it's partly about about that. Um, but I certainly felt, you know, that it was part of me. I mean, when I went to when I was 13, I thought I was walking where, you know, my relatives walked, um, and I was completely engaged in Israel. I played, you know, the, the songs of the kibbutzes, which are the, you know, the, the sort of socialist um, places where people lived in the early days. Um, I, I had a map of. Israel painted on my wall. I mean, it was, I was very, but when I was 13, it was a very important, uh, very important. Did you go to my life. Zionist summer camps? No, no, I went no. to, I went to whatever schools you went to, you know, during the week, but I never went. To a, what were the politics of, of your father? He, he, he comes of age or maturity during right. the Depression, the Roosevelt years? Liberal Democrat, um, really sharply liberal Democrat, I would say, particularly on issues having to do with um, with discrimination, you know, um, a fair shake for everybody. Um, you know, he really believed strongly in that. 
uh, was, and was a very charitable man, but not in a public way. It was all done anonymously, and it was things like if a person was burned out of their home in downtown Cleveland, um, there was a fund that he didn't even administer that they could just come to them and he would give them, they, they would get a check for their refrigerator, new, new refrigerator or whatever. And that really, that was a huge, that's been a huge influence on my whole family, the three, the three siblings, um, as looking at, at helping others and, you know, and, and in an anonymous way to a large extent. The 50s is a, is a weird decade. Um, it's, it's McCarthyism, uh, ushers it in, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. It's Leave it to Beaver kind of television. It's uh, this kind of, uh, I, I always have seen it as a, as a decade where the American elites are trying to undo the kind of awakening that took place during the Second World War in the 1930s, particularly this anti-fascist consciousness. Uh, you know, a lot of soldiers came back from Europe saying, we went to fight for democracy, now let's have some. 1946, there's more strikes than the whole history of the, in the United States, I think before or after. I mean, late 40s, very militant period. And you have this culture of the 50s to try to kind of almost stamp down the intellectual fervor of the 30s and 40s. What's your experience of the 50s? You're, you're old enough to kind of get a sense of it. Well, my experience growing up was you know, pretty insulated. I mean, other than the issues I've just raised, um, quite insulated. I mean, you know, Cleveland had actually a number of auto, auto plants and steel mills. And to that extent, there was some opportunity for African-Americans to actually get work in union jobs, uh, which has been destroyed, of course. And so there was some, some, some positive part of that. In terms of the McCarthy part, it was, we were, I would say I was utterly unaware of it, other than a, my, I have a strong image of the Rosenberg children, you know, uh, now the Mirapol children, but taking their, their parents, uh, or at least their father or mother, uh, some gifts on, you know, some birthday or something when they were in prison and of course and later just executed. just quickly, for people that don't know, the Rosenbergs were a couple, uh, they were members of the American Communist Party, I yes. believe, were they not? They were accused of espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union and eventually executed. And still, I think, still a great debate whether they actually were involved in anything other than politics. Right? Yeah, I mean, the much more difficult uh, issues for us, at least because my father in business, was around really the mafia and trucking business and things like that. Those were much more, much, much more, those are closer to us uh, than the McCarthy stuff just didn't really seem to have any, any influence at all. Well, in, in, in 1963, first of all, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I know for me personally, it, it was a very transformative moment for me because I thought the world was going to blow up. Uh, there was the, the world, in fact, apparently, was on the edge of nuclear war and it had a big impact on me. Uh, what about you? Yeah, you know, by 19, I mean, it, by 1963, I'm in college. I'm at Brandeis in Boston. And of course, that was for you know, this sort of upper middle class kid from Cleveland, it was a very liberating experience. While it was a Jewish origin school, it was a very liberal to left school at the time. Um, it had Angela Davis in my class, the Foners, whose family, uh, Laura Foner, whose family is you know, famous uh, left progressives, intellectuals. Um, it had a class, it was a, it was a remarkable place. And so it was about banning the bomb at that point. The main activity was going out and buy, banning the bomb. And to some extent, and I, I had some involvement in SNCC, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee helped run an office in Boston that was during the Freedom Summer. Okay, so you're already into activism by 63. So how, what turns the corner for you to even get your foot into that? Am I heavily into activism? I, didn't say heavily, I wouldn't but, say that. But you're in. Well, I think I just, 
I think what happened to me, the atmosphere at my, my college was so extraordinary. It, well, two things. The atmosphere at the college was extraordinary. I mean, Herbert Marcuse, the famous Marxist, was a professor at the college. There were professors who were involved in the civil rights movement. There were also some people like um, who had been, um, who, were, who, who had to teach there because they'd lost their jobs because they were communist. Um, I'm trying, I can't remember the names right now, but there were three or four at least very prominent people who were teaching at Brandeis who took them in after they lost their jobs. So there was a lot of influence, progressive influence, at the university and among the students who went there. So my roommate was, you know, had gone in the South and was a folk singer. I mean, you know, had all of that going on from Pete Seeger to the Clancy Brothers to all these groups. Um, so that, that was one influence and the other was the Times. Uh, you know, you had this, that was like, you know, the heart of the civil rights movement in, in a certain way. Well, had any of this touched you in high school or this is like you get to university and all of this new world you were now part of? Um, other than my background as being some, from the family I was in, none of it touched me, no. And it, it didn't happen until college. Um, and I wouldn't say I was by any means left at that point. I was a, a liberal kid. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to see a bomb. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't believe in discrimination, so I, you know, I, I thought about the Southern civil rights struggle. But I was a you know, good, decent, liberal kid. And the Democratic Party you feel connected to? The, the killing of Kennedy is very important to all of us during that period. I remember it completely when it happened. Um, and, um, and Johnson takes over after that. And, and what, what did that feel like do to you that, well, that my father had, my, Kennedy is killed? Well, my father died when I was 18. So I, I went off to college a week after my father died. It was very, very hard. So this is by the time my third year at college. And, um, and Kennedy shot in November. And at that point, I think it just all came back to me, my father's death and dealing with it. And I just did, I took that year off from college. And I lived in Cambridge and I worked in a bookstore. Um, and, that's what, and that's what I did. I just sort of, that was it. It just caused tremendous emotional issues for me during that, that particular period. The reason I mentioned Johnson is when Johnson ran, then he would have ran about 66 or so. I don't remember. I was think I was still in, in school then, um, in, college, in college, and I remember when you asked me about whether I was a Democrat, um, I voted for Johnson because he said he would not use nuclear weapons against the Vietnamese in the war, whereas Barry Goldwater left open the option of using nuclear weapons. So I figured, okay, this guy, he's not going to use nuclear weapons. And I, that was probably the last election I voted in, I won't say ever. Um, but I may have voted for McGovern, I think, at some point about stopping the war. Uh, but I essentially I don't really engage in national politics. And, and part of that was because what Johnson did, yeah, he didn't drop the bomb, but he escalated the war to 550,000 American troops and kept the thing going basically for years, killing probably a couple of million Vietnamese. Now, when you say you're a good liberal kid, um, part of that liberal democratic vision of the world, uh, which, you know, incorporates the Truman vision of the world and the Kennedy vision of the world is America as the white knight, America as, you know, bringing democracy and enlightenment to the world and, you know, Kennedy starts the Vietnam War. Um, is that part of your outlook at that time? You know, I think it's important what you're saying. I think growing up in that period in the 50s, I think we were inculcated with the idea that the United States is the savior of the world and is the best. And we could only say to ourselves how lucky we are to be born in America. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, of course, the 50s is the year, and I do remember that, where they put the word God in the Pledge of Allegiance. 
Um, when they put it on the back of the dollar bill, I don't remember. It was all about anti-communism, of course. Um, but, um, but I think the Vietnam War was a seminal event for me, yes, um, in terms of saying um, the United States is not doing good here. And I had arguments all the time with people about it because people believed in the United States. They were taught that the United States did good in the world. They were taught that without the United States, of course, looking at the Second World War, but of course they left out Russia from that little <laughs> equation. But um, they were taught that you didn't question the United States about what it was doing. And the fights were, were I had big fights at college in the 60s, uh, or late 60s and early 70s, uh, once I got to law school, but really late 60s. Um, when I was at, I guess I was at law school in the late 60s, yeah. Big fights with people about the United States doing the right thing, and so that was that would be a, that would have been a seminal seminal event for me. Now, why I took that position early on, I think I I know what it is. At college, okay, at Brandeis, I just this is fascinating. I forgot this. I, st I did my final one of my final papers on the Vietnam War, um, and I, I just wanted to know about it. And I read there weren't many English books about it. There was Bernard Fall. I remember about six books you could read. I read the six books. I wrote this paper about. This is not really a war about um, bringing communism to all of Vietnam. That's not what Ho, yeah, Ho Chi Minh may do that. But in fact, this is a, a war about nationalism and putting the country back together. And, the, and they'd, been, you know, they'd been really screwed out of their elections they were going to have to keep it together. And the U.S. wanted to make sure that Ho Chi Minh didn't rule the whole country and that it didn't become communist. But in fact, it was a national struggle. So I wrote this paper and I gave it to a professor who happened to be from Australia. I didn't get a great grade on it. Probably got a B plus. But he wrote on it and he said, you just underestimate uh, what the communists are going to do, and this is about the communists. Um, and that didn't resonate with you, given your father had run from the communists in Poland. You know, they, they, it, it didn't really, they, I don't know if they ever really, they never talked about running from the communists that much, other than that one story I said about, about their factory. Um, it, it, the communists never, it, it just, it was obvious to me in reading about Vietnam um, that this was a national struggle, it should be one country, whatever their government was, and that we were in there for reasons having nothing to do with the good of the people of Vietnam. So this is the, the really beginnings of your anti-imperialism? I think that's right. I, have, I still have that paper. I, I have to go back and look at it. I don't think it's probably very good because there were only a half a dozen books. Um, but yeah, that, was a, that, was a, that, was, that paper was, a, was, I guess, a big deal for me. Um, okay, well, we're going to pick this story up in part two. So please join us for part two of Reality Asserts Itself with Michael Ratner on The Real News Network.